The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Matthew 26, 36 through 38, and Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while, we go, while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. How are we doing? It's good to be with you guys. I've met before. My name is Tim. I get the privilege of being a pastor here. I got my emotions outfit on today. You're welcome. All black for the series. Just kidding. Oh man, it is good. It's good to be back. I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to get to take the four weeks off that I did for my paternity preaching break, if you can call it that. Uh, preaching is the primary thing that I do uh, here at this church, and so just to have the mental space and the emotional space to get to uh, be with my family and Lindsay and the girls as we kind of adjust to a family of four. Uh, thanks for all of you that have already brought meals, planning to bring meals. You guys have been such a huge uh, blessing to us. Uh, I'm also grateful for the guys that have come and preached preached God's word over the past four weeks. Uh, one of the things that, that is our heart for this church is that we're not a church built on any words of one man, but on the word of God. And so that means that regardless of who's up here, as long as they're preaching the Bible and preaching Jesus, that we're going to be okay and taken care of as a church. Amen. So grateful for that. Also grateful for all the, hey, can Garrison Walker preach all the time from now on text? So thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that as well. I'm just kidding. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, Matthew 26 uh, is where we're going to be this evening for most of the time, and then we're going to kind of land in Romans 12 eventually. Um, kind of just want to set up the series for us. So we're going to be in this series, Emotionally Healthy Church, for the next 11 weeks, the, the entirety of the summer until the first Sunday in August. And so we're going to have a lot that we're going to unpack and do. And so really today, I just want to kind of convince you and win you to the idea. I'll talk all about that. Let me pray uh, for us first, and then we'll, we'll get to work. God, thank you. Uh, for the opportunity and the privilege and the joy that it is to get to be with your people. Lord, something that we so often want to take uh, for granted, want to breeze through, want to overlook. And that's a gift. And it's a privilege that we, because of Jesus, as we sing about through grace and grace alone, have relationship with you, but also relationship with one another. And so we get to come together and think about you and worship you and celebrate you and study your word and your revelation to us. Lord, I know that as we think about a topic like emotions, that there's a whole host of different things that people are coming in with, a whole host of different ideas and different states of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our lives. Lord, so I pray that you would just silence the voices that are not you. Would you let us hear from your spirit? We need you in this. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> To be human is to feel. To be human is to have emotions. Think about the week that you've just lived through. You wake up, and it's Monday morning, and you realize it's Monday morning, and so you're sad, because Mondays are sad. 
Then on Tuesday, on your way to work, you're driving in the left lane, trying to go faster, and somebody swerves real quick, cuts you off, thinks it's your fault, and so they flip you off on top of cutting you off, and now you're angry. Wednesday, you don't have lunch plans, and a coworker invites you to lunch. They take interest in you. They ask good questions. They care about your life. They want to be your friend, and so you're happy. Thursday, your kid is being disobedient for the 1,000th time in a row, and you snap at them again, even though last week you promised you would never snap at them again, and now you feel shame and guilt. Friday, you get invited to a party in the neighborhood, and you go, and you know the host, but you don't really know anybody else who's there, and so you kind of stand off awkwardly in the corner feeling anxious. Right now, you're sitting in this room, there's a whole world of emotions that you're either paying attention to or ignoring going on in your heart. To be human is to have emotions. Now, here's the goal of this series, The Emotionally Healthy Church. Our emotional life, our emotional health, our emotional maturity matters greatly in our discipleship to Jesus. To put it in the words of Pastor Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in Queens, New York, he says this, he says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is not possible to grow into fully formed, mature, flourishing, made into the image of Christ, follower of Jesus, if we leave our emotional lives unchanged by the Holy Spirit. We cannot be truly spiritually mature without becoming emotionally mature. And so my heart and our conviction and goal for this series is to help lead us as a church into more and more emotional health and emotional maturity. And today, I just want to convince you to go on that journey with us. That's my whole goal for this evening. I just want to convince you to to buy in to this reality that emotional health and spiritual health are not separable. And then second, I just kind of want to give us a framework for how to move forward with the scriptures. So before we get started with that, before we get to Matthew 26, let me define emotions for us, right? So if we're going to do a series called the Emotionally Healthy Church, I want to make sure when I say emotions that we are all on the same page with what I mean. Now, this is a little bit easier said than done, all right? So stick with me. This is going to pay huge dividends for the next 11 weeks, I promise. What emotions are and what we do with them is a debate that, that goes back ages and spans across disciplines. So philosophers like Plato and Aristotle thought about and wrote about emotions, theologians like Augustine and John Calvin, even modern day neuroscientists, Ralph Adoffs and Lisa Barrett, they're like kind of the two leading voices that are fighting about this. So many brilliant minds have studied and written on emotions. And in broad strokes, there are kind of two leading theories about what emotions are and where they come from. The first, kind of a summary form is that it's the body and then the mind. So the first kind of leading theory is that emotions are physiological impulses or bodily responses or instincts that happened that our mind then reacts to and gives meaning or shape to what we're feeling. So for instance, you walk into a room and you start sweating and your pulse starts racing and your hands start getting clammy and then your brain tells you, oh, that's because you're anxious because you're at a party and people make you anxious. Now, obviously, it happens pretty instantaneous, right? It's not like that's a process you walk through when you show up to the party, like, I'm feeling anxious. Like, so it's an instantaneous, most of the time type of process, but the body leads the way. It's the body and then the mind. The second option, and this is kind of the historic Christian position, is the opposite. It says that emotions are mind, then body. 
The mind makes a value judgment based on a situation that then drives the emotional response. So for instance, you get on Instagram and you see that all of your best friends hung out at dinner the night before and you weren't invited. And so your mind evaluates the situation and says, they don't love me, they don't care, I am unlovable, and then you feel an emotional response of sadness and loneliness and heartache. Again, instantaneous often, right? It doesn't feel like a process you often walk through, but the value judgment and the evaluation from the mind comes before the bodily response. So if I could put it in kind of a chart form for you, it would look something like this. So you have the experience, the conversation, the situation, the circumstance, something happens in your life, you evaluate it, you assess it based on whether it's good or whether it's bad, and then out of that assessment, based on your worldview and your framework and your family of origin, all of this stuff, you then have an emotional response, sometimes internal, sometimes external, sometimes a good, what we would label good emotion, sometimes what we would label a bad emotion. That is the historic Christian position on emotions. Experience that you evaluate then leads to an emotional response. All right, hold that, kind of write it down, put it on the back burner, take a photo. We're going to come back to it at the very end. Let's go to Matthew 26. Life of Jesus. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 36. It reads, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, kind of Jesus' inner circle of three out of the twelve, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. All right, to give you the context of what's happening, this takes place on Thursday of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And they've just left the Last Supper, where he institutes communion, the bread and the cup, he washes their feet, he tells them, hey, Judas is going to betray me, Judas runs out, very awkward moment, I'm sure. And this is right before he gets betrayed and is handed over to the Roman religious leaders. And we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's facing the cross. He knows the cross is coming. Great physical and spiritual agony and pain await him, and it's bothering his soul to the point where he even tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Or as one translation puts it, I am swallowed up in grief. Now, to some of us, this Jesus with emotions might not be the picture we're used to or we generally think of when we think about Jesus. So growing up, my church, kind of right outside the doors of the kids' wing, had this photo of Jesus that he was standing in a pasture life-size, and on one hand, he was holding a lamb, and the other one, he was doing like a yoga pose, and there was kind of this aura behind him. It kind of looked like this. This is not the exact one. I wish I could find it, but it's kind of like that, right? And a lot of us, we have this picture of Jesus, like this stoic kind of float through life, unattached, unemotional frame of mind. Like he's kind of like an ancient uh, Eastern C-3PO, except less annoying, right? Like I am Jesus, human cyborg relations. Boop, 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 boop. That was just for you, Stephen. We have this picture of Jesus, like he just kind of floats through life, emotionally disengaged, emotionally unattached. And we have this picture largely because of bad 1960s theological ideas, another sermon for another time, where he has no sorrows, no emotions, no highs, no joy, but also no lows, no grief, and no sadness. But here in the garden, Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. He's not afraid to feel. He's experiencing deep emotions, but that's not just true here, right before the cross. Jesus is actually full of emotions throughout his entire life. Let me give you a few examples. Mark chapter 6. 
Jesus has been doing a ton of ministry. He sent out his disciples to go to different towns to do ministry. They come back, and he says, hey, this is awesome what God has done through you. Let's go get away, kind of a spiritual retreat to pray and to rest. Together, the crowd finds out. They run ahead. 5,000 men plus women and children approach him. They want to hear from him, and they want him to teach. And this is what we read in Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion. Literally translated as he was moved in his inner being on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Think about John 11, the death of Lazarus, right? Jesus, one of his dear friends, dies. He goes to visit Mary and Martha, the sisters of this man who has passed away, who he also deeply loves. He shows up on the scene, and we read the shortest verse in the New Testament, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He grieves. Or John 2. Maybe the most famous example of an emotional Jesus. He goes to the temple. A bunch of people have set up the temple as kind of this unrighteous, unholy marketplace. He steps in. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're doing all this sorts of ungodly trade. And we read this in John 2, 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their temples. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. These are just a couple examples of what we see time and time again in the life of Jesus. Empathy and compassion, sorrow and grief, joy and thanksgiving. He's accused at one point by the religious leaders of being a glutton and a drunkard, which means he liked to celebrate. Anger and zeal for God the Father's glory. And here's my point in all of this. Here's what you have to understand. Jesus was an emotional being. Jesus was an emotional being. Now, not emotional like we would use to insult someone, right? Like not just driven by all his emotions all the time, going to and fro, not under control. But he was emotional in the sense that he had emotions. He was unafraid to feel and to feel deeply. But here's the other truth. Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was godly. He was without sin, which means something incredible that we have to understand as a foundation for this series. Emotions are not bad. Emotions are not bad. Emotions are not bad. We'll talk about this a ton next week in that sermon, but emotions are a part actually of how we as humans are created in what the Bible calls the Imago Dei, the image of God. The, the Trinitarian God has emotions. Now, different than us in a hundred different ways that we're going to explore next week. Totally different, but emotions nonetheless. And so our emotional lives are part of how we reflect God as humans. And so just to make sure that I'm as clear on this as I can, emotions are not bad, meaning emotions themselves are neither righteous nor unrighteous. And I would argue, and I will argue over the next 11 weeks, that every emotion can be either right or wrong. Every emotion can be either righteous or unrighteous, right or wrong. What matters is why they're there and what we do with them. So the question then becomes, what do we do with our emotions? Now, in my life experience, both living and as a pastor and in my own soul, I think when emotions come into play in our lives, what we tend to do is go to one of two extremes based on your personality, based on your family of origin, based on how you were taught to think about emotions, your belief system, whatever it may be, there's primarily two ways that we approach emotions that are bad. And approach number one, the bad ways to approach our emotions, number one, is to suppress them. We suppress them. If you want to know if you're in this camp, you are annoyed, which is ironic because it's an emotion, that we are doing an entire series over the summer on emotions. 
you think, no, nah, Tim, listen, it's this easy, okay? There's two types of people in the world. There's rational people and there's emotional people. And I'm gonna put myself in this camp. Sometimes I'm tempted to think there's two types of people. There are rational people and emotional people. And if all the emotional people would just be more rational, then everything would be fine and the world would be fixed and all of our problems would be solved. This is the suppression camp. And this looks like a couple of different ways. For some of us, we suppress by detaching from our emotions and emotional responses. So we hear words like emotional health or emotional maturity, and we think that means a life absent from emotion. We kind of just get above the fray. We never really feel anything good or bad. We just kind of separate ourselves. Emotions are just the thing out there that all of life I just try to get away from, and that's what it means to be emotionally mature, is to be free from any emotions at all. Others of us, we suppress by distraction. Anytime something unpleasant comes up in our hearts, we just run to whatever can make us not feel bad anymore. And so it's like, well, I'm lonely and I'm sad, so what am I going to order for food or what am I going to watch on TV for the 10th time? I just don't want to feel this anymore. We suppress by distracting. Still others, we Christianize our emotional suppression. We try to over-spiritualize and to spiritually avoid our emotions. So we think or say things like, well, Jesus is alive, so stop being sad. Stop being anxious, just trust God. Hey, let go and let God. And so we hear emotional health, we hear emotional maturity, and we think that the goal is joy and only joy and only happiness and only good feelings. And so we emotionally suppress by saying, no, if I'm gonna be emotionally mature, I'm only ever gonna feel good things always. And the problem with this is that suppressing our emotions is at best a temporary solution. At some point, that emotion's gonna leak out. I heard a pastor this week describe it as trying to suppress your emotions, like trying to push a beach ball under the water. Did you ever play that game as a kid or as an adult, hypothetically? Where you're in the, in the pool, you know, and you have a beach ball and you're trying to like keep it under the water. At some point, what does it always do? It pops out. And that's what it's like when we try to suppress our emotions. Sometimes it, it pops out slowly. It just kind of turns into like bitterness or frustration or like cynicism and it kind of slowly seeps its way into our lives. Sometimes it just explodes all at once and we have a midlife crisis, or we blow up at someone and we're like, where did that come from? Oh, years and years of emotional suppression. At some point, the emotions find their way out and emotional suppression is not the way of Jesus. It's not the pattern of, a, of our savior. He's not in the garden going, okay, I know I feel this way, but like just ignore it, just be happy. I know the cross is coming, but like bad feelings. He feels it. Now, the second one is just as dangerous, and I would argue actually more of a threat for our church and our cultural moment here in the West. And approach number two, that's to obey our emotions, to obey them. We let them rule over us. We let them run our lives. We ride the waves of our feelings up and down and up again. And regardless of whatever is tangibly actually taking place in our lives, our emotions call the shots. And in case you think obedience is too strong of language, listen to some of these phrases. Maybe you've said them. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you've thought them. Quote, I can't help myself. It's just how I feel. Or I have to do what makes me happy. Or, I have to do what I feel is right. That's obedience language. It's as if our emotions are something outside of us that we have absolutely no control over, that they are reality and they are the governing rule in our lives. And we are servants to the every beck and call of our emotional whims. And often what happens, those of us who are pulled to obey our emotions and to unhealthily deal with them in that way, often we put the unhealthy emotions on the circumstances right? On the experience part of the equation. We say, okay, I'm feeling bad. The problem is the bad thing that's making me feel bad. 
right? So I'm mad, I'm angry. Obviously, it's because my friends are bad friends and they're not loving me well and serving me well. And so the answer is I just need to get some new friends. Or I'm sad and I'm lonely and my spouse isn't giving me what I need. And so obviously the answer is I just need to get a new spouse. Or I'm disillusioned with life and my job isn't living up to it and it's not fulfilling my passions. So obviously I just need to get a new job or fill in the blank, whatever it is. We try to fix the circumstance. And what happens is this leads to danger because what happens when we are driven by every whim of feeling and emotion is eventually we wreak havoc on ourselves and on the people around us. When we're obedient to our emotions, this is what leads to the man who lashes out at his kids in violence and anger, teaching them eventually to hate him and to hate others. When we're obedient to our emotions, this leads to the wife who has the emotional affair because she feels more loved by someone she's not married to, bringing destruction on herself and her household. We're obedient to our emotions. This is the person who hops from one job to another to another because they're just not feeling it anymore. It got too stressful. And obedience to our emotions is not the way of Jesus. Neither suppression nor obedience are markers of emotional maturity. So hear me, emotional maturity is not getting up above our emotions, never feeling anything or only ever feeling happy. But emotional maturity is not also obeying and listening to every woman call and saying, well, actually, no, I'm emotionally mature when really we're just obedient to our emotions and we call it saying that we are just self-aware. Here's what emotional maturity actually is. Emotional maturity is having the right emotion at the right time, with the right amount, for the right duration, because of the right reason, namely love. I'm gonna leave that up there for a second, you can write it down. Emotional maturity is having the right emotion, at the right time, with the right amount, for the right duration, because of the right reason, namely love. So it's the right emotion at the right time. It's an appropriate emotion that matches the situation, right? So it's inappropriate to be joyful when you should be sad. It's also inappropriate to be sad when you should be joyful. We have to have the right emotion at the right time. Then we have to have the right amount. Not every situation is allowed to be the hardest situation you've ever lived through. It can't all be the actual worst. We have to have the right amount of feeling. It has to be for the right duration. Sometimes we forgive someone, and we think we've forgiven someone, and yet we hold on to the emotional response behind our anger and frustration and bitterness towards them. That would be inappropriate. It's also inappropriate to move on too quickly sometimes for the right reason. We don't have that emotion because of pride or because of self-interest, because of self-protection, but rather we're driven by love of God and love of others. So think about those examples from the life of Jesus, right? Think about his weeping for the death of Lazarus. How emotionally immature would it be of Jesus to show up to a grieving Mary and Martha and go, come on guys, joy, I'm Jesus. That would be completely emotionally immature. No, he wades into it with the right emotion, weeping, the right time for the death of Lazarus. Out of love for them. He has tears, he has a broken heart. Think about the temple, right? Can you imagine Jesus walking into the temple all stoic? Like, hey, excuse me, uh, can I just overturn this table real quick? Boop. No, zeal consumes him. He's angry. Why? Because he loves the glory of God. Because he is for his father's glory and love for his father's house consumes him such that he has an appropriate emotional response. That's what it looks like to have emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is the right emotion at the right time with the right amount for the right duration because of the right reason, namely love of God and love for other people. This is why I believe so wholeheartedly that thesis for our series from Pete Scazzaro, where he says emotion, without emotional maturity, we cannot grow into spiritual maturity because spiritual maturity, according to Jesus, is a life of wholehearted love for God and others. 
It's as simple as that. You want to know what it means? What does it mean for me to grow up in my faith? What does it mean for me to actually walk with Jesus? It means to more and more every day grow in love for God and love for others. But if we remain emotionally immature, if we remain stuck on ourselves, unable to grow in love for God and love for others, we cannot grow into spiritual maturity. Because here's what happens in Pete's words. He says, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Many are supposedly spiritually mature, but remain infants, children, or teachers emotionally. They demonstrate little ability to process anger, sadness, or hurt. They whine, they complain, they distance themselves, they blame, and they use sarcasm like little children when they don't get their way. Highly defensive to criticism or differences of opinion, they expect to be taken care of and often treat people as objects to meet their needs. Pete's words, I would never say that. Whine, complain, distance, blame, sarcasm, using other people to meet their needs. This is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is first and foremost love for God and love for others. When we grow up into that, when we grow up into this emotional maturity, when we actually grow up more and more into the image of Christ, and we'll talk about how in just a second, then that is a part of our spiritual maturity. But if we don't get this, this is how someone can be in community groups or even lead community groups for years and years and years and know how to lead a small group discussion on the Bible, know how to do the ins and outs of engage the heart like we do, know all of that stuff, and yet still remain emotionally distant and numb to the people they lead and the people they're in group with because they never let their emotional maturity catch up. They never let the Lord develop their emotional health. This is how someone can read so much theology and know the ins and outs of ecclesiology and eschatology and soteriology and any ology word you want to put on it, know so much about the doctrine of God, and yet they can struggle to disconnect emotionally at home with their roommates, with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors, and instead withdraw consistently into work and into hobbies and into fun. This is how we can show up on Sundays and we can sing with all of our hearts and we can shout and we can lift our hands and we can praise God. I'm assuming the best that we all do that every time. It's a joke. Thanks, Keila. <laughs> and yet we can remain numb to what's actually going on in our hearts with the Lord and the inner work that he wants to do in us. And so in order for us to actually grow up into the image of Christ, such that we love God and love others more, we have to let him also grow us up emotionally. And I, I don't want emotional unhealth for you, or I don't want emotional unhealth for me. And so just part of my story, some of you guys are like, you should be preaching to yourself. I am. Here's my story. When you get ready to plant a church, uh, which we did a few years ago, we go through a number of what they call church planning assessments, which are like basically week-long things where you go sit in a room at a bunch of pastors and wives and former church planners just post around in your life and try to find a reason for you not to actually go plant a church. They're as fun as they sound. Uh, and so we went to one uh, about six months before we moved, and uh, I'll spare you the details of the weekend, but afterward, you kind of get an assessment report back, which is an email that's just like, here's all the stuff you need to know about yourself. And I got the assessment email, and I'm reading it, and it started out great. Uh, so it said stuff like, Tim uh, knows his theology well, and he uh, can preach half decently, and he can lead an organization, and he has a, a, a knack for starting things, an entrepreneurial spirit. And I'm thinking, like, this is awesome. Like, this is great. And then you get to the last line, and it's not a direct quote, I promise. It basically says something along the lines of, and we want Tim to be known 
to know that we think because of his family of origin and the patterns that he has developed and learned over years and years, that he has a propensity to perfectionism, both with himself and with others, that keeps him disengaged from his own emotional heart and the emotional life of those that he stands face to face with. In other words, you should plan a church, but be really weary because you're an emotionally stunted perfectionist. So really, the 11, next 11 weeks are for me. What I want you to see is what the Lord has been trying to show me, albeit imperfectly over the past three years, is that my relationship with him, my love for him, and my love for others cannot move past my willingness to let him deal with my emotional life. We will not grow into spiritual maturity if we do not also allow the spirit of God to work on our emotions as well. And so that's the invitation for us, and that's kind of where I want to lead us as we close. Romans chapter 12. I want to answer this question as you consider going on this journey with us over the next 11 weeks. This question of what does it look like for us to move towards emotional maturity? Romans 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's what happens. This is the pattern of emotions, right? We have an experience, and we evaluate that experience based on a framework, and that leads to an emotional response. And what Romans 12 is inviting us into to step forward into emotional health is that our evaluation, our assessment, our minds, our interpretation and framework for what just happened and how we are going to appropriately respond emotionally needs God-given renewal. Spirit-driven, grace-empowered, Holy Spirit-led renewal. And we wouldn't just say, no, like everybody else, let's change the experience. I'm sad. I just need to change the factors of my life. I'm angry. I just need to get out of this. I'm, I'm sad. I'm alone. I'm, I'm whatever. I just need to change the experience. And then the goal is joy and happiness and peace forever. It's not the invitation of Christ. The invitation of Christ is to say, hey, regardless of the circumstances, let Christ do an inner work of deep renewal in your heart such that you respond emotionally appropriate the right way, the right amount, at the right time, for the right duration, because of the right meaning, love, love for God and love for others. And so the invitation of this series is to go, Lord, will you do that work in me? God, will you do the deep work of renewal in my heart? God, I'm going to stop focusing for a few weeks on my circumstances. I'm even going to stop focusing for a few weeks on my emotions. I want to focus on what you want to do in me, the renewal work you want to do in my heart. And in my soul, I want you to do the promise of Romans 12, the invitation of Romans 12, that by the mercies of God, by his grace and his grace alone, that we would be renewed in our thinking. What happens when this actually gets that is that when that person sins against you, when they hurt you, when they betray you, I, I don't immediately want to play the victim. I don't want to think about just how they're wrong and I'm right and how I get justice. And I don't want to argue with them in my head anymore. I want a new evaluation. It hurts. Yes, Lord, but change my thoughts. Change my heart. Change my mind. Help me to forgive and to respond in love and mercy. When my kid won't stop doing that thing I've asked them 10 times to stop doing over the past five minutes, I don't want a framework and an evaluation of dishonor and frustration and anger, them ruining my comfort or getting in the way of me proving myself through my parenting. I just want a new response. Renew my spirit. Give me kindness and love and sternness that leads them to a heart change. 
when I'm sad because my life isn't going how I want, when I don't know how to move forward, when I feel alone, Lord, I need you to renew my spirit. Renew my mind. Give me a new framework. Give me new eyes to see what it is that you're doing. When I want to run from every bad feeling that comes my way, push it down, distract myself, suppress it, fake it. Lord, help me to be honest before you and before myself and before others and change my heart. That's the invitation of this series. That's the invitation of the scriptures. That's the invitation of Jesus. And so how I want to close, I just want to invite you into this journey with God. And I want to invite you to pray this prayer starting tonight and for the next 11 weeks. And that's this, God, you can have my emotional life. God, you can have my emotional life. Not just my church me, not just my front, not just what I show to other Christians in my life, not just my circumstances, not just my situations. You can have my emotional life. You can have my joy. You can have my sadness. You can have my grief. You can have my pain. You can have my anxiety. You can have my loneliness. You can have my shame and my guilt. You can have my emotions. I need you to do the work. I need you to renew me by your spirit. Will you grow me into emotional maturity? Will you help me by your grace, by the power of your spirit, learn more and more to have the right emotion at the right time with the right amount for the right duration because of the right reason, namely love of God and love of others. There's so many ways we're going to walk into that this summer. You have that handout in your bulletin. I just want to invite you to consider these. All of these are opportunities for you to, to put some flesh and some meat on the bones of offering God your emotional life. They're just ways to kind of come alongside of you in the journey towards emotional health. I know that some of us are like, I got this, let's do it. I've been looking forward to this series. I know that some of us are like, emotions are the most scary thing I've ever thought about in my life, which is also an emotion. Whatever you are in this, I want to invite you to step into these initiatives, morning prayer, the book clubs, seek first, worship night, come meet with, with me. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. But I think most of all, the invitation, if you're going to consider one, and we've said this already, if you're going to consider one, I would really encourage you to do redemption. It's an opportunity. I know a lot of you guys have asked, like, what is it? What are we doing? It's an opportunity for you to offer up your life and your story to God and see how he might redeem it by the power of his spirit. It's an opportunity to look at, hey, Abby, can you put the chart back up? Redemption is an opportunity to look at all of these experiences that you want to say, Lord, what are you going to redeem in this? How do you want to renew me in this? What do you want to do in my story, in my life now, in my life past? How do you want to redeem what I've walked through, things I've done, things done to me? I want to invite you to consider all these initiatives, that one in particular. And I want to invite you to continue as we press into this together. God, you can have my emotional life. Renew me from the inside out. Transform my mind. I want to pray for us, but before I do that, I'm just going to kind of give us a second uh, to be with the Lord and to pray that prayer before we kind of move into communion and our response time. I just want to give you a second to, to offer that prayer up to the Lord, to ask him, Lord, what might you want to do over the next 11 weeks as a part of this emotionally healthy summer? What do you want to do in me as I consider my emotional life with you? So I'm going to give us just a minute to be silent, and then I'll pray and lead us into communion and worship and all of that. Just take a minute, eyes closed with the Lord, offer them, him that up. God, you can have my emotional life. Take a minute, and then I'll pray for us. Lord, as I think about my emotional life and as I think about my heart before you, God, I'm well aware of my desire to hide. God, and I'm well aware of my desire to want to fix myself up before you, to put on a facade, to, to want to fake it. 
got them well aware of my desire to suppress my emotions, to think that faithfulness and maturity is ignoring them or just only ever feeling the happy ones. But I don't want to do that. God, I don't, I don't want to suppress my emotions before you. I, I don't want to obey my emotions if they're God and King, because you are. God, but I, I need you to do a deep work of renewal. God, I need you to, to show me ways that I'm evaluating my life and evaluating my circumstances and I'm not responding appropriately. I'm not living in a renewed mind as you invite me into. I'm not living as a new creation like you call me to be and say that I am in Christ Jesus, Lord, but that I want to run the way of the world. I want to fight like everybody else is fighting. I want to defend like everybody else is defending. I want to hide like everybody else is hiding, Lord. And I just don't want that with you. I want you to know me. I want you to change me. God, we can't manufacture renewal of our hearts. We can't manufacture the renewing of our minds. Lord, we can only make ourselves available to the work of the Spirit. as Romans tells us, in view of your mercy, in view of the cross, in view of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection that takes away our sin and makes us right with you, Lord, that we would offer ourselves up to you. Not just our actions, not just our words, but our emotions. That you would renew us from the inside out. We love you. We need you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.